I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 69th part of my sermonic review of the last year of the life of Christ, in which my point is that once you accept the reality of your experience with Jesus Christ, he will accept your repentance just as he did for Thomas. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. On November 8th of 2009, we're looking at the 69th part of our sermon series on the last year of the life of Christ. And the text is in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. And the Bible says this, the centurion and those with him who were standing guard over Jesus were struck with fear when they saw the earthquake and the things that took place. They said, Surely this man was God's son. The crowds who had come to see this spectacle, the crucifixion, also saw these things and returned home, beating their breasts. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear this message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly, clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, in our last lesson, we discussed the meaning of the most significant act that happened coincidentally with Jesus's death, that being the tearing of the veil in the temple. The temple veil was a 60 foot long, four inch thick piece of woven and embroidered cloth that hung before the most holy place in the temple from ceiling to floor. The distance between floors in an office building is roughly 15 feet, which would make the veil four stories high. Now, the veil was woven so thickly that although it could be cut by a blade that was sharp and long enough, the veil was too thick to be torn by anyone, regardless of how strong that they might be, even from bottom to top for its entire 60-foot length. The idea that someone climbed some type of ladder 60 feet into the air, tore the four-inch thick veil from top to bottom between the rings that held the veil to the pole running parallel to the ground that held it up, and then continued to tear the veil down for its entire 60-foot length is preposterous. Even if it were physically possible to tear the veil, the veil was acting as a barrier between the holy place, which could only be entered by the Jewish priests, and the most holy place, which was a place into which only the high priest could go, and then only once a year to bring God a sacrifice of blood 
to atone for the sins of the Israelites. And as this title indicates, the most holy place was the most holy place in Judaism, and the scripture prescribed that anyone saving the high priest that entered it would be struck dead by God. But when Jesus died, the veil in the temple that protected the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom in spite of the fact that it was physically impossible for anyone to tear it. And as I tried to make clear last week, the tearing of the temple veil that corresponded with the death of Jesus Christ represented the end of the Jewish sacrificial system. Sin was no longer to be atoned for through the Jewish rituals performed at the most holy place. The Jewish rituals were performed periodically, but sin was actually judged once for all at the cross of Calvary through the death of Jesus. Rather than providing a temporary annual sacrifice for sin, Jesus on the cross provided a permanent sacrifice for sin in his own blood, which made it unnecessary to sacrifice an animal ever again. Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And my research indicates that 300 Jewish priests repaired the veil. For them to do so was futile because God never visited the most holy place again. Jesus told his disciples in John 14 and 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the only process that will atone for our sin is receiving the new spiritual birth as a function of recognizing that which Jesus Christ has done for us. There's no place, there's no ritual, there's no incantation, there's no good deed, there's no offering, there is nothing that will atone for our sins except the new birth that comes to us as a result of our recognizing the truth of that which the Bible tells us about Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved from the eternal penalty of sin other than the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. But men can only be saved voluntarily. To be saved, we have to choose to accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the truth, and then having done so, we have to decide to align our lives with his life as we grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And God navigated the circumstances of life to make this plain to us. The harmony of the gospels that we are using as a text for this study tells us in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19, the earth shook, the rocks broke in pieces, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had died rose again. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, entered the holy city, 
and appeared to many people. The centurion and those with him who were standing guard over Jesus were struck with fear when they saw the earthquake and the things that took place. They said, surely this man was God's son. The crowds who had come to see this spectacle, the crucifixion, also saw these things and returned home, beating their breasts. And since it was the preparation day, for that Sabbath was a special day, the Jews, in order to keep the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, asked Pilate to have their legs broken and then have them taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men who were crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he, was, he had already died, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. The one who saw this has given this testimony. His testimony is true and he knows he tells the truth so that you may believe. These things happen so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says they will look on the one they pierced. Now the Romans, Romans crucified Jesus because of the Jews anger over Jesus' saying that he is the son of God. But after seeing the things that happened when Jesus died, the guards did not break Jesus' leg on the cross, declining to do any further violence to his body because of the reverence that they developed for him. God navigated the circumstances following Jesus' death in order to fulfill the scripture. And God but continued manipulating, as Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19 continues. After this, when it was already evening, a man named Joseph, went to Pilate. He was a rich man from the Jewish city of Arimathea and a disciple of Jesus, although he kept it secret because he was afraid of the Jews. He was a reputable member of the Sanhedrin, a good and just man who had not agreed with its decisions and actions. He was also looking for the kingdom of God. Since it was the preparation the day before the Sabbath, he boldly went to Pilate and asked for permission to take away the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was dead so soon, so he called for the centurion and asked whether Jesus had already died. On learning it was so, he granted the body to Joseph. Near the place where Jesus was crucified was a garden, and in it was an unused tomb that Joseph had newly carved out of the rock. And since this was the preparation day and the Sabbath was imminent, they laid Jesus there before because the tomb was so close. Then they rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and left. Matthew 27, 62 through 66 continues. The morning after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, the imposter said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order to secure the grave until the third day, or else his disciples will come at night and steal his body and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. Then the last deception will be worse than the first. 
Pilate told them, you have a guard, go and make the tomb as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and stationing the guard. So the circumstances were that Jesus was dead and buried in a sealed tomb, guarded by 16 Roman soldiers. And just as it was impossible for anyone to tear the veil in the temple, it was equally impossible for the disciples, or anyone else for that matter, to move the stone and steal the body while the tomb was guarded by the Romans. It is also preposterous to think that the disciples would do so. If they forsook Jesus in life, what would be their reason for obtaining his dead body? But all these things happened because of the design of God. God wants us to be saved through our belief in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus chose hard-headed, skeptical men as his disciples, men who would not be convinced by emotionality, but only by the facts of the case. Jesus chose these men because he wanted them to convince other hard-headed, skeptical men, all of whom would believe in Jesus Christ so much that they would give their lives for their faith, even as Jesus did. And nothing would make men more likely to give their lives for the cause of Christ than to convince them that the Christ came back to life after dying. So Jesus was executed in the most brutal method available in their time by the most efficient and powerful fighting force of the day. He was then entombed in a tomb hewn from a solid boulder, meaning that the only opening for the tomb was the part of the boulder that had been hewn out. There was no side door or back door. And after discovering that Jesus was entombed, his enemies had the one entrance to the tomb guarded. And there was probably, in the history of the world, never a dead man that had less of a chance to get out or to be taken out of his tomb. But Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20 tell us, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices which they intended to use to anoint Jesus' body. They and several others with them came at early dawn on the first day of the week to see the tomb, bringing along the spices they had prepared. Suddenly, there was a powerful earthquake. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled the stone away from the door and sat on it. He shone like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were terrified and became like dead men. Now after Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Mary came to the tomb while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the door. Then she ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They took away the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple went out and ran toward the tomb. They started running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped down and saw the linen cloths lying there, but didn't go in. 
Simon Peter arrived shortly afterwards and went into the tomb. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. The face cloth which had been around Jesus' head was not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. They did not yet understand the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So the disciples returned to their homes, wondering what had happened. And even as Peter and John were wondering what was going on, the women who were crying and distraught over Jesus' absence from the tomb were finding out what happened. First, Jesus himself appeared to Mary Magdalene, while the angels appeared to the other women announcing Jesus' resurrection, and then Jesus himself appeared to them. Both Jesus and the angels instructed the women to communicate the good news to the men, but when the women did so, the men did not believe them. Even Peter and John, who had been to the tomb, did not know what to make of the situation. Meanwhile, the Jews were still scheming, as Matthew 28, 11-15 tells us, as the women were leaving the tomb, some of the soldiers entered the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After they gathered together with the elders and discussed the situation, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and said to them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole his body while we were asleep. If the governor should hear about it, we will satisfy him and get you out of trouble. So they took the money, and did as they were told. To this day, this story is widely spread among the Jews. Now the Jews refused to accept the evidence themselves posted. There is a psychological property in people known as cognitive dissonance, which specifies that the mind rejects anything with which it does not agree. When Michael Yeke came by my house 28 years ago to convince me to get involved with the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he could not convince me to believe in Jesus's reality. I knew as a simple logical fact based upon my own experience and all of the history of which I have ever heard that it was impossible for a person to come back to life from the dead. A person who recently died could be resuscitated by modern medicine, but 20 centuries ago, someone that had been executed, certified dead by their executioners, with no one trying to resuscitate them, and then buried for three days, could not be raised from the dead because it is impossible. And I am not the only person who knew this. As Mark chapter 16 and Luke chapter 24 tells us, Jesus was later revealed in another way. That day, two of them were walking into the country to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were discussing everything that had taken place. And as they talked and reasoned, Jesus himself approached and walked with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Jesus asked them, what are you talking about with each other as you walk along with such sad faces? One named Cleophas answered, 
Are you the only one staying in Jerusalem who doesn't know about the events that have happened there recently? What things, Jesus answered. The things about Jesus of Nazareth, a proud deed and word before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be condemned to death by crucifixion. We were hoping that it was he who would redeem Israel. What's more, this is the third day since these things happened. And today some women from our group astonished us. They were at the tomb early this morning and didn't find his body. They returned saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who told him that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said, but they didn't see him. Now the women said that they saw angels that said that Jesus was alive. But we know that that can't be true. Jesus is dead. The soldiers that executed him certified that he was dead. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus, and if there had been any sign of life in Jesus' body, they would not have done so. Therefore, Jesus was dead when they put him in the tomb and sealed it. Nobody bothered the tomb because the tomb was guarded by the Romans. So if somehow Jesus miraculously came back to life, he would have been sealed in the tomb. But he's dead, so he couldn't get out. It's not possible. I can't explain the empty tomb, but I know for a fact that Jesus is dead, so he can't be alive. Cognitive dissonance. And if you're going to be a believer in Jesus Christ, you will have to get over your cognitive dissonance. I understand that you have cognitive dissonance. I understand that the resurrection is completely outside of your experience, but to be saved, you will have to believe in Jesus Christ's resurrection, meaning that you will have to overcome your cognitive dissonance. Now, I overcame my cognitive dissonance by research. Michael Yakey told me that he had proof that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Proof. Now, the fact that he claimed to have proof did not convince me that he did, but it did convince me to look at his proof if for no other reason than to punch holes in his argument. Michael's proof was the history of the church. 28 years ago when I was saved, there was an entire half floor of books in the Michigan State University Library on the history of the church. Now, history is a subject that requires faith. You and I believe that our ancestors came to this country in slave ships. We've never been on a slave ship. We've never seen a slave ship. None of us have any living ancestors that were actually brought to this country on a slave ship. And I doubt that any of us have or ever have talked to any living relative that was a slave. Everything that you and I know about slavery is a result of history. I was born in 1952 and my earliest memory is that of something that happened in 1955 when I was three years old. The only reason that I believe that the world was not created in 1955 is because of my study of history. Dad told me that he was born in 1921, and I believe it. I was not here to see it, and I have no memory of it, 
But dad is an historical person in my life, and I have decided to believe his testimony. Now, he could be lying, and I would have no way to know about it. But when I listen to the stories that he tells me about events that happened during his childhood and then read the history books written about the same period, I find that the stories match. That being true, I find Dad to be a trustworthy witness. And when he tells me about personal events that are not in the history books, I tend to believe him because of his trustworthiness. The gospel writers, and particularly Luke, were historians, and the archaeologists that used their references as guidelines for their work have determined that Luke's references to people, places, and things in the Bible are confirmed by archaeology. As a matter of fact, secular archaeologists that don't even believe in God still use the Bible as a reference book for their work in the Middle East because they can dig up the places that the Bible specifies and find the things that the Bible says are there. Cleopas and the other disciples did not have to perform an archaeological dig because they had Jesus there with them. As our lection continues, then Jesus said to them, O foolish people who are slow of heart to believe everything the prophet spoke. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them in all the scripture passages, uh, in all the scriptures rather, the passages about himself. Can you imagine Jesus coming to the disciples that don't believe in him to explain about himself? But how else are they going to believe? They did not believe that which Jesus told them when he was alive the first time that he was going to rise from the dead. And they certainly did not believe the women that he had risen. But the only experience that will overcome cognitive dissonance is a significant emotional event. The event has to be jarring enough to the psyche to break through the cognitive dissonance and change the person's internal perspective. A significant emotional event causes a person's thinking processes to completely change. A significant emotional event changes one's thinking and is analogous to having one's mind born again, which is why in John chapter 3 verse 3 Jesus answered and said to him, "Must most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus' explanation of how his life, death, burial, and resurrection fulfilled the scripture was sufficient to engage the mind of these two disciples, but it was not significant enough to be considered a significant emotional event. And as the lection continued, as they approached the village where, village where they were going, he acted as if he would go farther. But they pleaded with him, stay with us, they said, because evening is here and the day is almost gone. So Jesus went in to stay with them. And as he reclined at the table with them, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and began giving it to them. Their eyes were opened and they knew who he was. Then he vanished from their sight. This is the significant emotional event. 
as they watched Jesus disappear from their sight, their minds and hearts were changed. As they testified in the continuation of the lection, which says, and they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he spoke with us on the road and kept explaining the scriptures to us? The burning in their hearts signifies that their minds are beginning to change. As they listened to Jesus teach, their mental faculties began to recognize the possibility that maybe the women were telling the truth. It dawned on them that maybe their opinion that Jesus was still dead was wrong. Maybe that which they thought was impossible had actually happened. For the first time, they seriously considered that Jesus actually could have risen from the dead. Then Jesus blessed and broke the bread and gave it to them. They recognized that they had seen the man who was breaking the bread do And once their minds captured the reality of that which was happening, Jesus completed the significant emotional event for them by disappearing from their sight. Resurrection in the mind of these two disciples was no longer impossible because they had broken bread with the resurrected Jesus Christ who had been crucified. Then he died and they buried him. Now Jesus is appearing to them, teaching them as he had before his crucifixion breaking bread with them as he had before his crucifixion, and he vanished from the room while they were looking at him. This experience caused them to have a mental breakthrough. Their cognitive dissonance was changing as their minds began to realize the fact that Jesus was alive once again. They were experiencing, beginning to experience a newfound joy being caused by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, their minds were being born again. And Jesus spent the rest of his day causing his other disciples to be born again. This lection in Luke 24 and John 20 continues, that very hour, the two disciples got up and returned to Jerusalem. There they, find the ele there they found the 11, actually only 10 of them, and those with them gathered together and saying to each other, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Simon. Then the two disciples told them what had happened to them on the road and how they had recognized Jesus when he broke the bread. But the other disciples still didn't believe them. It was evening on the first day of the week and the disciples were assembled behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jews. And as they were talking, Jesus himself came and stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. The disciples were shocked and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. But Jesus said to them, Why are you alarmed? And why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. See, it is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh, as bo flesh and bones as you see I have. And when Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and feet and sighed. And only then did the disciples become joyful at seeing the Lord. While they were still overwhelmed with wonder and disbelief because of their joy, Jesus said to them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb, and Jesus ate it in front of them.
Now, during Jesus's passion, the nine disciples forsook Jesus and Peter denied Jesus because their minds were not born again. They believed in Jesus's deity intellectually. That is to say that they believed in that which they had experienced about Jesus's ability to successfully handle messianic situations. Jesus could heal the sick and raise the dead. However, when Jesus submitted to the death of the cross, the intellectual faith of the disciples changed as the disciples decided that Jesus was not the Messiah because in their minds, Jesus's death on the cross was not fitting for the Messiah. They had their own thoughts about the Messiah and their cognitive dissonance did not allow them to understand the information that Jesus gave them that his death on the cross was part of God's plan. And now that Jesus has once again proven his deity by rising from the dead and appearing to the disciples, the disciples are now becoming convinced that Jesus Christ is Lord. These post-resurrection interactions with Jesus are causing the disciples' minds to be born again. Now, some children are saved almost from the time that they're able to know anything. Their parents have been born again and present Jesus Christ to their children as a fact when their minds are the most malleable. If parents are saved and train their children from their earliest days, it may be that the children will develop a belief in Jesus Christ in the same way that they believe that two plus two equals four. Nevertheless, to be born again, it is necessary for even these children to have an experience with Jesus Christ as the devil would do his best to undermine the unverif unverified belief of a child unless the child is securely sheltered from the devil's clutches which is virtually impossible to do in our generation. Being born again involves having a life-changing experience with Jesus Christ, as we see from our next scriptural example in John chapter 20, verse 24 through 29. It says, Now Thomas, who was called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. When the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, Thomas replied, unless I see the imprint of the nails in his hands and press my finger into the mark of the nails and my hands into his side, I refuse to believe. Eight days later, the disciples were again indoors and Thomas was with them. Although the doors had been locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace to you. Then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands and take your hand and press it into my side and stop doubting and believe. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. You have believed me, Jesus said to Thomas, because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Once again, cognitive dissonance is overcome as Jesus tells us in Luke 19 and 10, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus has not come to punish the unbelievers among his disciples, 
But Jesus has come to do that which is necessary to overcome cognitive dissonance as the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Once you accept your experience with Jesus, he will accept your repentance, just as he accepted Thomas's repentance. It doesn't matter what kind of sinner you were or how great your disbelief was before your conversion. Jesus is willing to provide you with the experience that will convince you of his deity. And then he is also willing to forgive your disbelief because the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. John three sixteen and 17 tells us for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And even with all their failings, all their cognitive dissonance, and all their unbelief, Jesus still loved his disciples. Jesus did not reject Thomas because of his unbelief, and I am of the opinion that Jesus deliberately arranged Thomas's absence so that Jesus's love for Thomas, cognitive dissonance notwithstanding, could be recorded. The episodes of Peter's denials of Jesus, the conversion of the thief on the cross, and of doubting Thomas are all important for us because we all have unbelief. Yes, we may believe in Jesus intellectually, but when our chance to put our lives on the line for him comes up, our cognitive dissonance has a tendency to show up. But by these examples, we know that there is forgiveness for the sin of unbelief, which I have termed as cognitive dissonance. Mark chapter 16, verse 14 through 18 begins. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And Jesus rebuked the disciples because he knows the heart of man. The disciples saw his miracles and heard his prophecy, but they not only denied him in the shadow of the cross, they also refused to believe those of their own number that saw him after he rose from the dead. But their failings notwithstanding, Jesus has called them to be his witnesses, and he wants them to fulfill their ministry. So after Jesus rebuked them, he forgave them and tells them in Mark chapter 16, verse 15 through 18. And Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Jesus Christ performed miracles to convince his disciples of his deity now Jesus Christ is giving the power to perform miracles to his disciples to convince others of his deity. 
The purpose of Jesus' ministry is to overcome the cognitive dissonance of the world, and he is willing to empower his disciples to do that which is necessary to achieve his objective. He tells his disciples in John 19 and 21, Then Jesus said to them, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they have been forgiven. And if you do not forgive anyone's sins, they have not been forgiven. The law of Moses is no longer the arbiter of righteousness. Now we have the example of the ministry of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to give us the ability to think as we should think and to act as we should act. And what is our mandate as Christians? Mark 16 and 15 and John 13, 34 and 35 tell us, And Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The disciples have power. The disciples have preaching. The disciples have the commandment to love. And that is the essence of Jesus' ministry to the world. Power, preaching, and love are that which we are given to overcome the cognitive dissonance of the world. Power, preaching, and love, love are that which we are given to overcome the devil. Power, preaching, and love are that which we are given to win souls and increase the kingdom of God. Power, preaching, and love are that which we are given to make it clear to all, as our text tells us, surely this man was God's son. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for your lesson, and we thank you for the power for the preaching and for the love that you have given us, for the evidence that you have given us of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for the historical evidence that you have given us for the history of the church and how those who were, who were in the early church persevered through life and death to spread the gospel of your resurrection, which gives us the confidence, confident assurance of history that you rose from the dead and appeared to those men on that Sunday morning, that you ascended into heaven and gave them power to preach your word, which is still being preached 20 centuries later. And now we ask you, Lord, that you would empower us as we go down from this place to clear the cognitive dissonance from our minds. Help us to have a steadfast belief in your life, in your death, in your resurrection, and in your ascension into heaven and help us to be confident and assured in our salvation because we know, because we know, because we know, because we know that although the wages of sin is death, that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And now Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, 
for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.